This is Medicaid Leadership Exchange, a podcast where Medicaid directors and other guests get frank about what it's like to steward the nation's largest health insurance program. Through Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program, 56 agencies administer a complex web of programs that provide access to essential health services. Listen in as we explore some of the challenges Medicaid leaders navigate and their top priorities to deliver services and build health. Hello, everyone. Today's podcast is focusing on an issue that has garnered a lot of attention recently, both in the Medicaid space and nationally. And there's a broad recognition that the social drivers of health really influence health, people's ability to have safe and stable housing, to have adequate nutrition, to be safe from violence. Those are really things that we all are beginning to recognize even more how they can influence a person's health and well-being. And as such, Medicaid programs across the country have been partnering with housing partners and food security partners and others to really make sure that the programs and systems in their state are aligned to really support members' health. And housing has been one of those places where there has been a lot of innovation. And so today, I am just really excited to learn from some leaders in the state of Wisconsin and the state of Arizona on their unique approaches to aligning housing support services and their Medicaid programs to help people who really do face some of the most complex life circumstances of any other population that we serve. So I'm happy to welcome Amy Polda, the Homelessness Services Manager of the Division of Medicaid Services in Wisconsin, and Liz DaCosta, the Director of Housing at the Arizona Medicaid Agency, also sometimes called ACCESS. So we're going to learn a little bit about each of their programs what they are implementing, and the unique Medicaid levers that they're using to do that. But also we want to explore how these partnerships have developed, right? Two big systems like housing supports and Medicaid can really be complicated to get aligned. And so we'll dig into some of those lessons learned from alignment. But first, I'm going to let the guests introduce themselves and talk a little bit about their program. So Amy, I'll turn it over to you to share with us about your work in Wisconsin, introducing yourself, and then talking about some of the um, high-level overview of what you all are working on. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm Amy Polda. I'm the um, Homelessness Services Manager for the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. Um, And Wisconsin is working on a really unique initiative. We are going to implement um, a health services initiative that will use um, children's health insurance program funds to cover a set of supportive housing services for families with dependent children 18 years and younger and individuals who are pregnant. So under this initiative, to be eligible, families must have an income that does not exceed 200% of the federal poverty level. Families must also be experiencing homelessness as defined in any of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development's four categories of homelessness. So those include uh, literally homeless, individuals who are staying in shelters or in places not meant for human habitation, imminent risk of homelessness, which means the individual uh, or family will lose their housing within 14 days with no subsequent housing identified. Um, The third category is homeless under other federal statutes. And finally, the fourth category is fleeing or attempting to flee domestic violence. So individuals um, and families must be experiencing homelessness in one of those categories. The initiative will cover supportive housing services, which include four uh, overall services, housing consultation, transition support, 
sustaining supports, and relocation supports. So housing consultation will really work to develop a person-centered or a family-centered housing support plan based upon each family or individual's unique needs and circumstances. Transition supports will work to assist families and individuals to prepare for and transition to housing. So this can include um, assistance with providing education on a housing search, helping to search for available housing, helping to identify um, the um, adequacy of uh, public transportation in areas and under consideration, um, helping to address credit issues for applying for housing or working to review um, a lease or a rental agreement. Sustaining supports will be provided uh, once the family is housed to help them achieve and maintain housing stability and achieve those goals that were identified in the person-centered housing support plan. So that can include things like uh, education on the role and rights and responsibilities of tenants and landlords, conflict resolution skills, um, supporting members in the development of independent living, such as skills coaching or financial counseling, um, and working to provide like ongoing coordination efforts to connect um, members with needed resources in accordance with their person-centered housing support plan. Final benefit provided under this initiative will be relocation supports to help financially facilitate a family's transition to housing. So this will be um, $2,000, which can cover things like security deposits, utility activation, um, home furnishings that primarily benefit the child or children in the household, um, or services necessary for health and safety in the unit, uh, such as pest eradication or one-time cleaning prior to occupancy. This initiative is also supporting a grant program. So we are going to be partnering with homeless assistance providers throughout the state of Wisconsin um, to deliver the supportive housing services for eligible families and pregnant individuals. That's a great overview, Amy. Thank you. I wonder, uh, before we learn about some of the uh, proposed work in Arizona, do you all have an estimate of how many families would meet the criteria that you'll be able to serve? Um, the criteria sound, uh, you know, pretty well described. Were you able to decide or to anticipate how many families you might serve? Yes, um, we did. As we were researching this initiative, um, we did partner with um, the uh, Institute for Community Alliances that over, um, oversees the homelessness management information system. We we're able to look at some data, um, the number of children and pregnant individuals that have accessed homeless and housing services throughout a given year. So we saw that uh, about 2,000 children and 300 pregnant individuals. Um, in Wisconsin had accessed housing support services for a year. So we were able to provide an estimate um, that way. Terrific. Thank you. It just helps to think about like the number of people who could be served by what sounds like a, an amazing array of supports. Liz, I'm going to turn it over to you to help us understand uh, what you all are working on. First, introduce yourself and then what you all are working on in Arizona. Excellent. Thank you. Yes, Liz DaCosta. So as mentioned, I'm the director of housing for Arizona's Medicaid system. Um, came prior from a nonprofit organization where I worked in direct service for over 13 years, uh, working on outreach, shelter, and housing programs. So really glad to be at, at the Medicaid system and working on uh, our 1115 waiver. So I think what's important, though, is first looking at some of the historical context for the ways in which Arizona's Medicaid system has implemented housing services. 
We know Medicaid doesn't historically pay for uh, housing. So we did get a state appropriation of general funds dedicated to the Medicaid system that we got to manage internally to be able to pay for rental assistance for our members. So the um, in regards to eligibility, most of it is for individuals who have a serious mental illness designation according to a statute in Arizona. But we are also able to pay for rental assistance for some individuals who also have general mental health or substance use disorder who are identified through our managed care organizations as also being high cost, high needs. And so that program really functions as a public housing authority for the state of Arizona. Um, we get to administer rental assistance where the individuals get to go into the community, find an apartment that they want to lease up in, and then use the rental assistance to lease in that unit for a period of 12 months. We do annual recertifications. Um, they pay 30% of their income towards rent, very similar to what you would see with the public housing authority. Another really innovative thing in the state of Arizona is we have a, a statute where we get to use unclaimed property um, from the state and two million of the dollars of the unclaimed property actually comes to the Medicaid system. So we can use it to actually do acquisition and uh, renovation of housing units to dedicate those units towards members with a serious mental illness. So really we've got some fund sources to be able to do property acquisition and renovation to designate actual units for our members. And then also the rental assistance through the state appropriation to pay the ongoing rental assistance that helps those um, housing properties be able to address operations expenses and things like that to make sure that the home remains um, in housing quality standards. Now, the third kind of leg to that, though, too, with the permanent supportive housing model is the support services. So we really do use the Medicaid support services, the covered services, things like case management, living skills, health promotion, and our contracts with our managed care organizations so that they can contract with dedicated providers out in the community to build those services so they can provide the supportive services necessary to really help connect with the members, um, help them get their documentation ready for lease up, help them find an apartment, and then help them uh, stay with them as they're in their unit to understand terms of their lease, how to be a good tenant, good neighbor, so that we can really work towards housing stabilization. A lot of that program then led to what we're going to go into further today around the 1115 waiver for how we really were trying to find an earmark some additional resources to be able to expand our capacity to cover rental assistance and then also address some of our gaps in our community. Amazing. Um, so I do want to get wonky for just a second. Um, I know part of our goal is to really explore the intersection of housing and homelessness, but I also know from other conferences and conversations I've been in, People are really interested in the mechanisms that you all are using to do this kind of work because it is so innovative. So Liz, you started to talk a little bit about a 1115 waiver uh, for listeners who don't know. It's a way to engage with the federal government to waive some of the pro provisions of the Medicaid program to try innovative things to try and, and help people. So they really are a mechanism for innovation. So I want to talk a little bit about that. And then, Amy, you mentioned you're using another mechanism in Wisconsin, the CHIP HSA uh, approach. And so that is also a unique and sometimes I would argue underutilized mechanism to, to push innovation. So let's just for a little bit talk about those mechanisms. Liz, I don't know if you want to start with the 1115 waiver and what you all are working on through that mechanism. Yeah, it really, it was the administration of our uh, state appropriation, state appropriated general funds and implementing rental assistance in our state that helped us identify a few gaps um, in member care that we wanted to try to address through the waiver. So 
Um, one is outreach. We know that outreach is not currently a covered service. And so we have case managers who needed to get out into the community to try to find their members who were suffering from chronic homelessness or who had discharged from hospital settings and they couldn't find them. So we did apply to get outreach as an approved service in the waiver. And then another is the additional resources to be able to cover rental assistance. Because through our state appropriation, we're able to house about 2,500 members annually. But as we know, those members are you know, in housing. So it's oftentimes the same member who's going to need to draw down those same dollars the next year. So we don't have a lot of capacity to you know, be enrolling new members into that program. So we needed additional rental assistance. So we did apply for um, approval of rental assistance, and we were approved for six months of transitional housing. Another one of those gaps we identified is that even when a member is referred to a voucher, if they're sleeping on the street or they don't have a stable location in which they can reside, it's very challenging for our case managers to be able to assist them, to locate them, to help them access housing. So a lot of members were issued vouchers, but they were not able to lease up because they didn't have a safe, stable location to reside. So what we're working to do with the waiver and the six months of transitional housing that we received, um, we're working to create enhanced shelters in our state. So it'll provide individuals with a temporary location in which they can reside while case management staff comes in and assist them with accessing permanent housing options. What we also noticed is that, you know, we can we can do the 15 minute increment of billable services to Medicaid, right? Like I mentioned, like they're doing case management, living skills, health promotion type codes. But in our state, it does require 15 minute increments, which for a dedicated support service provider who's out there in the community, that can be very challenging when really their goal is to provide as much direct service to their member. But they've also got this administrative responsibility on the back of their mind, like, you know, oh, I assisted them with looking for an apartment, right? Which code is that going to be? Oh, I helped them learn how to take care of their unit. Which code is that going to be? So in the waiver, we also were approved for pre-tenancy and tenancy support services for housing stabilization and retention. And we're really working to design our policies to meet the needs of those providers so that we can look more at like a per member per month rate for eligible populations. But just really, in, you know, looking at the gaps that we identified through our housing program and being very strategic and trying to figure out what negotiations we can have with CMS in order to try to fill those gaps through our waiver. Terrific. Such such an interesting approach and such a strategically uh, sophisticated approach. Really amazing. Amy, how about you? How did you all decide to use a CHIP HSA uh, authority and financing for your work? Well, Wisconsin decided to uh, pursue the uh, CHIP Health Service Initiative because it really offers a unique opportunity to target services to low-income children and children experiencing homelessness in Wisconsin. So the state of Wisconsin has actually created a statewide action plan called Welcoming Wisconsin Home to address homelessness. And one of the strategies in that plan is to pursue Medicaid authorities and initiatives related to housing support services. So when researching opportunities to utilize Medicaid to provide housing support, Wisconsin did collect data and information on homelessness in Wisconsin. So I mentioned that we worked with the um, Homelessness Management Information System to review data. And we did see that during a school year, during the 2018 to 2019 school year, there were 18,000 students identified as homeless and one, at one point during the school year in one of those uh, four categories of homelessness. 
and 2,000 had accessed housing support services in that year. Um, in addition, um, according to the um, annual HUD homeless assessment report, Wisconsin was in the top five states with the largest number of uh, families, um, you know, family homelessness in rural areas. Um, and finally, there is a big equity issue in Wisconsin for low-income children as it relates to homelessness. So in 2019, 9% of children in Wisconsin were African-American, but 37% of children experiencing homelessness and enrolled in Badger Care Plus were African-American. Um, so we do know that housing stability is one of the most social uh, important social determinants of health. Um, and among children, homelessness and housing uh, instability can contribute to missing routine doctor's visits, increased toxic stress, delayed cognitive development, um, increased mental illness and substance abuse disorder. Similarly, individuals who are pregnant and experiencing homelessness may suffer from post-traumatic stress, major depression, um, dependency on alcohol and drugs, just generating a series of negative impl implications for their babies. So we do um, anticipate that this health service initiative will provide uh, Wisconsin Medicaid with a unique opportunity to partner with homeless assistance providers to improve health equity um, and outcomes among children and pregnant individuals. Terrific. And I know from other conversations, families experiencing homelessness haven't necessarily always been, well, one, they can't be served in sort of some of the same structures, and they haven't always been the, the priority um, because of other populations who are um, suffering as well. I wanted to pick up on that thread of partnership. So one of the things we've been exploring in this season of the podcast is how do you make partners across? And it seems like you all play a unique role because you're dedicated staff. And that seems to me that you would then have part of your core responsibility is navigating these partnerships, right? And bridging between the housing systems and the healthcare systems and the Medicaid system. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how you have approached those partnerships with housing partners or with your managed care organizations, if you're using them in this work, or you mentioned, Amy, uh, the grant programs, how has partnership and really getting everyone aligned and understanding each other's language and those kinds of things, how has that been important in your success so far? And I'd invite either one of you to jump in. Well, in Wisconsin, one of the key partners that we worked with in putting this initiative together um, is the uh, Continuum of Care Regional Agencies. Um, continuum of care, that's a requirement of HUD that each state have continuum of care regional agencies. And the regional agencies, um, they really work to promote community-wide coordination efforts towards the goal of ending homelessness. They act as an umbrella organization for many homeless assistance providers within their region. Um, so in putting our CHIP Health Service Initiative together, we worked with the COC lead reg regional agencies um, to help us put together our state plan amendment. We um, worked with them to help answer questions from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. But importantly, we also worked with them to help spread the word about this initiative to their member agencies. So um, in order to really implement this initiative, we needed agencies that were gonna be interested in applying. Um, and the Continuum of Care Regional Agencies um, really worked with us to spread the word about this program, to encourage their member agencies to apply, 
and to ask, you know, help, um, you know, answer and ask any questions, um, you know, they have. So that was a key partner that we had. Um, Wisconsin also, as a state, we have an interagency council on homelessness. Um, that includes the um, leads for many state agencies. It includes the continuum of care regional leads. And that was one avenue we also used to help get the word out about this initiative. Terrific. Liz? Yes, I, I agree. Um, we also partner with the con local continuum of care. So we have three in the state of Arizona. And I think what was really important is that we fully integrate ourselves into those systems. So we do have two staff at Access Medicaid who actually sit on the continuum of care boards for uh, two of those local COCs. So you know, through that, through that, you do relationship building, you get to know all of the different housing providers in the community, and you really work to try to understand how can you leverage your resources and how can they leverage your their resources so that you can simultaneously come together to meet the needs of the member and essentially kind of spread the dollar as far as possible. So one example is in Maricopa County in uh, Arizona, we do have a large HUD continuum of care grant that comes in and they have been able to dedicate most of that grant, I would say about 95% of it towards nothing but rental assistance for members, because we have leveraged the Medicaid system and our ability to um, bill Medicaid covered services to, to come in as the permanent supportive housing, uh, supportive services, sorry, a component of that grant. So that requires a lot of integration though still, because you essentially have, you know, two separate sides of the house working together on this one grant. You've got your managed care organizations working to engage case management, working to make sure they're trained in SAMHSA's fidelity for permanent supportive housing. And then you've got the rental assistance component coming from the HUD continuum of care. But you know, really though, getting out into the community, into those meetings, we've also come into contact with quite a few developers. So I think this is another really important partnership right now is we have, um, through the Arizona Department of Housing, developers who are getting awarded our low-income housing tax credits right now, and they still are experiencing some challenges due to rising construction costs or concerns with zoning, with being able to get their, their beautiful, affordable housing complexes off the ground. So what we've been able to do is actually leverage those um, SMI housing trust fund dollars that I talked about earlier, we can do acquisition and renovation. We're able to leverage some of that capital expense to be able to help them with their underwriting. And in return, they then dedicate some of their units towards members with a serious mental illness that Medicaid, our Medicaid system is working to prioritize. So really when those low-income housing tax credit properties come online, beautiful complexes with splash, splash pads and you know on-site head start, right? a good percentage of them are dedicated towards Medicaid members. So, and, and we do deed restrictions on that. So for the period of 20 years, we're gonna be able to refer our members directly into those locations. That really comes about though, through that you know community integration and, 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 and partnership and really understanding, well, what are your needs? What are my needs? And how can we really combine resources to come together to collectively meet each other's needs? Terrific. So I think we've explored, you know, looking at data together helps you know where you need to prioritize, either finding gaps or finding unique populations that aren't well served, like in Wisconsin. Using the structures and reports that re the report you mentioned, um, Amy, seems like an important piece of, you know, we have a statewide vision for addressing this challenge and there's strategies within it, some of which include leveraging Medicaid. Um, but also then these unique partnerships and sort of being at the table, right? That you cannot underestimate the power of being at the table. So when you think about all of that, I want to 
just quickly ask about what leadership has been needed, right? It can feel like these, these initiatives feel like they've taken a lot of time and a lot of work and leaders change, staff change, you know, you have turnover, you have changing in priorities. How have you all stayed dedicated to this work? And what is the sort of leadership that either you have had to provide as staff or the people who you report to have had to shepherd to be a, a, a strong steward of this approach to homelessness? Yeah, I think really important that our director of Medicaid always um, recognize the importance of housing and addressing health-related social needs. And so really help to support our department in a way that was necessary for us to have the capacity to get out into the community and do what we needed. So a, a couple of years ago, there was just one position for uh, housing in the Medicaid system, but now we've been able, we have actually a team of three now. So we have a housing development manager that's focusing on property acquisition and renovation. We've got a housing program manager that's really focused on the rental assistance component of it. And I go attending continuum of care meetings. So Really, the leadership of the uh, of the director position at Medicaid was really important, and then also within our own leadership too. I think um, you know, in overseeing our staff, we we really we have a housing crisis right now. You know, we we have tons of individuals who are sleeping in unsheltered situations. So I think it's really important that we still come with that servant's heart and essentially kind of a hustle um, of recognizing the importance of our role and our position and the willingness to get out into the community and, you know, and, and have it and, and practice innovation and in trying to meet the needs of our, of our members. Terrific. I love that phrase, a servant's heart. Thank you, Amy. Yes, and I would say at the Wisconsin Department of Health Services, um, this homelessness services manager role, it is a new role. Um, it's, a, it's a relatively new position, and um, it was created specifically to focus on Medicaid strategies to support housing. Um, so this is an, something that's really important to our department. It's really important to our Medicaid director created a, creating a dedicated position um, for these types of supports um, was um, a, a really strong push to kind of get these proposals and initiatives implemented. Um, and it showed a dedication to these types of services. Um, I think also as guidance, I have mentioned that we have that welcoming Wisconsin home plan, and that is an interagency partnership in Wisconsin, a variety of government departments coming together to address home homelessness. And we have these strategies to guide us in implementing that action plan. Um, and this is a particular strategy. So having that plan, having the Wisconsin Interagency Council on Homelessness um, where we continue to report on initiatives that are being undertaken at the Department of Health Services. All of that has really um, dedicated efforts to these initiatives and has, you know, throughout staff turnover, throughout changes in administration, it has really focused us on continuing to implement these types of supports for um, populations in Wisconsin. Terrific. Amazing. I think we've heard repeatedly the importance of embedding structures that support ongoing connection and collaboration, and you all have mentioned those. So I'm going to begin to turn us to wrap up, and um, we'll have the chance for Mark Larson to be reflective of uh, what lessons he's listened to. But as you think about other states who are really interested uh, in learning from you, 
not only the tactical things, but some of the things we've been exploring today around commitment and servant leadership and servant heart, what would be the one or two nuggets of advice that you would give to other states who are starting this journey about how to work together collaboratively and really begin to address this challenge that does require a multi-system approach? So what nuggets of wisdom would you offer to state colleagues and other stakeholders listening to the podcast? The really important for us is, is the understanding of the data, because when we look back at um, outcomes for our members who were served in our rental assistance programs, we could see that there was a reduction in emergency department visits, a reduction in inpatient admissions, reduction in, in admissions into behavioral health residential facilities, and an overall cost savings per member per month of over $5,000. So I think that really was a driving factor that once you have that data, you can then take it to all departments across the Medicaid system and say, look how impactful housing is on members' treatment and member care. And then from there, you have a lot of individuals that really kind of rally behind it to be able to try to drive the work forward. So yeah, that data perspective was really important. And I know Amy had mentioned it, but we've taken it now beyond Medicaid because those are really Medicaid outcomes. And now we actually have access to data coming in from the homeless management information system, which is where our continuum of cares are actually putting in their information. So Access now receives some of that data so we can see of the members served in the community shelters, who has had a recent serious mental illness designation evaluation, who maybe did was denied for some reason that we can actually have outreach teams go out there and identify, hey, this is still somebody who's suffering from chronic homelessness, who, according to the Medicaid system, has a qualifying diagnosis. So how can we wrap around supports to be able to help ensure that we're leveraging our Medicaid services to also support the continuum of care program? So I think, yeah, in, in, in closing on that, it's the collection of the data that helps really tell the story that can engage a lot of different departments and partnerships to further the work. Yeah, and, and to add to that, I think everything that Liz said was great. A, another thing, you know, that has really helped in Wisconsin is just taking um, advantage of opportunities and educational experiences offered by the um, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So um, the um, Wisconsin Housing Support Health Services Initiative really did come out of um, a presentation that CMS had put together on health services initiatives, um, listening in on that presentation, and then getting the idea, like, this is something Wisconsin can do. This is something that we could potentially do for housing support. So, you know, taking advantage of all of those opportunities, understanding uh, data and helping to, you know, using data to tell your story. So in developing our children's health insurance program, health service initiative, we did use data from the homelessness management information system, talking about, you know, the experience, the number of children and families experiencing homelessness in Wisconsin, impacts that has on health. And we presented all of that in our state plan amendment that we provided to CMS. Um, I think another important lesson is the importance of collaborating with stakeholders. So I mentioned that we reached out to the Continuum of Care Regional Agencies um, in Wisconsin to assist us in putting together our application, to assist us in answering questions that CMS had. Um, and also um, helping us spread the word about this initiative to their member agencies. Another helpful tool for um, the um, Department of Health Services has just been working with other agencies that provide housing support. So in Wisconsin, um, our Department of Administration has a division of housing, energy, and community resources. 
that has um, a lot of supportive housing and affordable housing initiatives put together a lot of grant opportunities. So learning from their experience was also helpful. Terrific. Amazing. Um, you all are, have really shown, shown us the way to innovate. And it, it's been really uh, amazing to listen to. Mark, I'm going to turn it over to you for some final comments but before I do, I just want to express my gratitude for you all really digging into this incredibly important work. So, Mark, to you. Gretchen, I feel like we're always so lucky to be able to explore with folks like Liz and Amy this question of like, what, is, what does leadership in the public sector mean? How do, how do people make it work? And today we're privileged to be able to, to think about this through two really interesting stories about really timely and important topics. And we always seem to touch on, there's a technical piece to this. And I forgive me, the image in my head was, I, there was a kid's museum when I was little that had one of these rooms where there was just tables of stuff that you could put together. And, you know, 1115 waivers, the, you know, the chip opportunities, the, you know, whoever knew that unclaimed property would be something we could tinker with on the table. The creativity on that technical level is, is so impressive. But it reminds me once again that it's all really local. Like the what works in one place doesn't always work in another, even though we we crave that 10-step guide for here's how you solve this thing. I'm impressed by the tinkering that both of your teams have done. Uh, and then we always, we hear these stories about the special sauce. And in this one, what, what stood out to me was the way that you both talked about the importance of telling the story uh, through data, uh, but also through partnership in order to be able to rally people to really stick at it to solve a really you know historic and vexing issue that has real consequences for individuals and our and our communities. That notion of how you create the story and bring others into the story and then be able to continue to fuel the story is we aren't just technical solution finders, but we're also, you know, weavers of that story. And Liz, Amy, I Appreciate you reminding of that us of that today. Terrific. Well, we will leave on that note and remind ourselves we are both technicians and weavers. What a what a great image. So we look forward to uh, the next episode of the Medicaid Leadership Exchange. And thanks for listening. This podcast is a collaboration between the Center for Healthcare Strategies and the National Association of Medicaid Directors. It is made possible by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation.